June the 29th and you're watching, you're listening to Curiously Polar. See, I noticed you're listening to because this is an audio podcast, not just a video show. Hello, everyone. We are back with another episode of Curiously Polar. With me are Henry and Mario. Buenas, buenasera. No, buena. How do you say this in... Buongiorno. Buongiorno. That, that was the other one was Spanish, wasn't it? No, it was good evening in mixing, Italian. That was very good. Yeah. Mixing, yeah, mixing up times. My, mixing up my languages. Um, good day, gentlemen. How are things in Romania? Are uh, awesome. Great. A little bit too hot uh, for my personal feeling, but um, it's things you can't really change at the moment. And how are things in Tromsø? In Tromsø, it's uh, drizzly, uh, 10 degrees. Nice. I mean, this must Sounds this must awesome. be one of the weirdest setups. Okay, two Germans, one Italian, <laughs> one living in Germany, one living in Romania, and one living in Tromsø of all places. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're having a, a transect across Europe. It is it is wild, and uh, we also what a what a segue. We also have a wild set of topics for you today. Um, <laughs> uh, we've been doing what we do. We have taken time to collect things throughout the week and uh like i guess probably this is gonna be mainly a polar newsreel show today because we have so many things uh and so many interesting things on that so i think we can just kick it off with a new ocean we have yes. a new ocean how did how awesome, does that it? happen like poof here it is how how does a new, <laughs> new ocean, ocean there. come into existence <laughs> let, let me open the web page from life science um What does that entail? What does that mean? Well, I think the the big news uh, have been or has been that um, National Geographic um, finally recognized the Southern Ocean around uh, Antarctica as a separate ocean, mm. and um, there has been a debate in scientific community if the features of the Southern Ocean are enough to classify it as a separate ocean, or if it's just a prolongation of the three major oceans, uh, Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Ocean, or um, if it indeed is an own uh, ocean. And uh, National Geographic now um, yeah, confirms or recognizes the um, scientific proof of that it has enough features to uh, be defined as an own ocean. When you say National Geographic, are you talking about the publication, National Geographic? Yeah. Yes, the are National they, Geographic Society. Are they Society. the ones who, who can say this is an ocean and this is not an ocean? No, that's that's what the article is about. It's not about a scientific um, approval or, um, how, how to say, a content uh, in there. National Geographic has evaluated the, the data over the years and has now come to the conclusion that there is a majority of scientists um, or a majority of studies proving that the Southern Ocean has the features of an own ocean, and by that recognizes that. So in their in their maps, and that's kind of in popular um, literature or popular media, um, the National Geographic maps are like the the benchmark for others, and uh, by ah. that having so, that so in their National Geographic maps. It's the maps. mapping it's, entity of National Geographic pretty much because I I, yeah. I don't know the exact setup but I think th those are kind of separate entities anyway. There's National Geographic <laughs> Travel and there's maps and there's uh, the magazine and so on. Yeah, but there is true. also, isn't there also a commission on uh, geographic names uh, that has to be uh, approving these names? 
That is true, but I think the Southern Ocean has been approved a long time ago, mm. even though it wasn't really um, defined as an own ocean. Yeah, but in any case, with the circumpolar current practically uh, blocking the uh, exchange between the uh, all the other oceans that that are north of uh, the uh, of the of the uh, Antarctic Ocean, that's uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, there, it's actually a, it's actually a barrier, a physical barrier for uh, exactly for most marine life. And that's exactly the the reason why now it has come to the conclusion that this barrier, the polar front, um, really defines a new ocean or mm. a separate ocean. But uh, the polar front also varies throughout the year and also yeah. throughout the different years between one year and the other. So there must be quite... Uh, you, you cannot really say this is where the Atlantic Ocean stops. It's much more difficult than the other oceans, certainly, mm. yes. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Anyways. So so who, who defines these boundaries now? I mean, uh, is it, there must be, on a map, there must be like a line uh, that uh, delineates <laughs> these oceans. Isn't that the case? Or how can you say, the, the I, I don't know, not Let, sure. let's say you have, a, you have a ship's accident, you have to say where it happened, right? What you, yeah, that's what yeah. you have GPS coordinates for. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think uh, I think you do like, for example, for the north, like the, you take the, an, a mean, an average of all the positions throughout the years or the past 20 years or 50 years of the position of the second quarter current. So you know where it is. Like in this map that you have on the screen now, there is a, oh. an Antarctic second polar current. And that's, uh, that's pretty much a line that is an average over or an approximate position. Plus, the deadline on the screen is actually several tens of miles wide on real life. Right, and and over the year, this would this is a kind of a wobbly line anyway. Mm. It's not static. Okay, mm. I get it. Ha! Ah, all right. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of waters and bodies of water, there is a new lake well, there that was. has, that, that there has was disappeared. Lake. Right? Yes. What what's that about? It has been a, a meltwater lake discovered um, or observed in, on, on Amory Ice Shelf in Antarctica, one of the largest ones. And um, the Australian researchers have observed it and have researched it. And the 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 surface of the meltwater lake uh, has frozen over, so it was um, a subsurface lake, but in the ice mm. shelf itself. And then suddenly that water drained, and by that the frozen surface just collapsed and for some reason it then just got blown up so now we have kind of a um yeah like a little dome on that ice shelf and uh, that's the interesting thing uh, so that's quite interesting all this water is then gone through cracks in the bottom of the glacier and uh, maybe lubricated the uh, surface between the uh, glacier and the bedrock so it's it might be moving faster now this is an interesting article that you've brought up here um at kpbs with um well you cannot just listen to it here which uh, kpbs i guess is a is a radio station but um they also have like uh the the amount of water that escaped the lake is, is superimposed <laughs> on the skyline of New York. so you see this huge cube of water which gives you on top of Manhattan. On uh, top of Manhattan. You get, <laughs> kind of get an idea that that's not a tiny little lake. It's mm. quite significant. Um, yeah. And then they also have like a, a video about this on the, on the webpage. So interesting thing to look at for sure. 
Hmm. Very, very interesting. A lake collapse. You don't see this very often. No, particularly. I mean, that's something that the um, research or the, the, the study so far doesn't really answer is why did it get elevated after it collapsed? So the, the frozen surface on the lake just collapsed when the, when the water just drained out and then it got elevated again. So why did it get elevated? So what's what's in there? And that's going to be interesting. And that's a further research right now from the Antarctic, um, uh, the Australian Antarctic Division, because they are the closest uh, on the Amory Ice Shelf. And um, yeah, that's going to be very interesting to, to just follow up. Hmm. Could it be the water went into uh, like the liquid water went down and then froze and then expanded, or yeah. is the elevation too too high? I'm not sure about that. Hmm. Uh, there was no further information in there on that. Yeah, quite okay. interesting. Let's see if we can find more information about this. Yes. So uh, next topic in the let's say in the general area of. Um, of things that the years are throwing at us. We are uh, in 2021, and the, this year and the last year were quite interesting in terms of things that happened that nature threw at us. Um, here's another one that, I don't know, should I be concerned? There is an organism <laughs> that's been living, well, that, that's been frozen in Siberia in the permafrost for 24,000 years, and they have just like thawed it up and it just came back to life what does that mean is this dangerous are we are we all gonna die no. well no. yes we are but, well, uh, well how, we are, are all we, going to die, gonna gonna die maybe quicker? maybe not because of this one here <laughs> i mean uh, this organism is a multicellular organism so it's mm. uh, they're called the rotifer and they are actually in practically all bodies of water uh, all over the all over the globe so it's not uh, not particularly dangerous in in this case and uh, the interesting part is when you uh, the interesting thing here is when you can find an organism that has been frozen for such a long time and there is no decay of the dna or nothing that actually impairs its function when it's thawed up again and uh, i mean we can talk about cryopreservation of uh, of people and uh, and it's it was science fiction but we're getting closer to uh, being able to freeze uh multicellular organisms and thawing them and finding out why and how it can do this it's it's amazing there was uh, some time ago something about uh, a tardigrade these uh, small tiny little teddy bears that can be uh, can survive all sorts of uh, situations and uh, like being shot at a uh, shot uh, at a surface with high speed wasn't there can, where, where did they yeah. some out in out in outer space and came back and were still yes, alive it, it, exactly so it's uh it's actually new things that we discover about life and and as many as most animals this uh, organism is made of cells this rotifer is made of cells and these cells contain a, a watery saline solution and this also expands when it's frozen and in this case of course the animal was definitely frozen and it uh, in normally it would break out the cell walls and in this case it didn't so its cell walls are also special and studying maybe something that would look insignificant and very small it's uh, still uh, it can it can surprise us and it can give us uh, indications of how to survive a frostbite, for example. 
or maybe freeze ourselves and hope that yeah. <laughs> hope that whatever <laughs> we're we're uh, de whatever disease we have might be curable in yeah. a few thousand years. Exactly. Hmm. Well, life life yeah, finds either. a way, as they say. Life finds a way, unless it doesn't. Which is the next <laughs> article that uh, that we have here in the newsreel. This is in National I Geographic love magazine. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. I'm really on, to on top of my game today. Um, this is from National Geographic magazine, and it is an article about soils from Antarctica that seem to contain no life, which 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 blows yeah. my mind because I was under the impression, and from all I've learned in the past, is that uh, that you could pick up a handful of soil from anywhere in the world and it would have bacteria in it and some life forms but yes, this is exactly. apparently not the case everywhere exactly and this is uh we're talking about soil we're not talking about uh like sand or like we're talking about something that should be fertile and should be uh should be containing bacteria and there are no places before this study there were no places on earth where the soil didn't contain bacteria so some form of life and in this case uh, and they of course put a caveat that they might not have seen everything but in this case they have researched with the pcrs or with the same system that you have with the with the, um, in order to find uh, if you have had uh, covid uh, in your in your samples so amplifying the dna like trying to figure out if there is any trace of life in if you can find dna in this soil and it's not possible to find dna and uh, and this is really interesting if you're talking about something that is totally sterile well that soil is probably just as sterile as an operation chamber or maybe even more hmm. yeah and where Do was they... it found that's uh that's in antarctica and uh in uh like uh, now there are uh several places that are visited by animals and of course these if you're talking about uh, in the antarctic peninsula where there are colonies of penguins or birds but if we're going further in in the dry valleys then uh, you have places where there are no vertebrate life apart from a few researchers and and this actually brings to us the uh the importance of being careful when exploring things, exploring places. Because when we move, we bring with us all of my, our microbiome, and uh, and it's very difficult to uh, to not to leave a trace. Like uh, the debates so that were with the uh, perforations that the Russians did in Antarctica to the Lake Vostok, and uh, so you have a lake that is uh, that has been isolated for for let's say several thousands of years, not millions of years, and and then you just break through the surface to find out what there is in there, but then you also may bring something. There was so, a big debate about that, actually, uh, when yes. they drilled it down. Yeah. So, yeah, bringing things, leave no trace and so on. Um, yes. but, but, that, but not having found any DNA in there means there also haven't been any animals leaving behind poop and other things. For quite some time, at least. Yeah. For quite some time, because DNA, of course, degrades with time. So, but it's uh, very, very you... durable, isn't it? I mean, there is from from um, from a completely different field, from computer technology. There are now DNA-based uh, methods to save data that you can read back thousands sure. of years later. So, must have uh, must mean that there haven't been animals in a very long time. 
Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's quite interesting. And linking back to the episode last week when we uh, were looking uh, at uh, dinosaurs in Antarctica. <laughs> well, they didn't leave a trace in this place anyways. Or that we cannot find a trace in this place. It's pretty crazy. So, um, next up. And that's a bit that's a bit of a we, we kind of smuggled this into the newsreel. Um and we start this off with uh an Arctic circumnavigation by Best Explorer. What's that about, Mario? You brought this one. Yeah, I brought this one here because uh, well, first of all because uh, Best Explorer is a uh, is very close to me and my family because it's actually uh my father's uh, boat and not just my father's but it's uh, the property of an uh, an association founded by my father and uh, um my father just uh, is one of the few people that has uh, done a circumnavigation of the arctic uh, north of the continents now now you see there is a l- very long uh, tour down in the Pacific because these are uh, all all after, individual yeah. Uh, yeah. mark marker point geomarkers uh, on this map yeah. that you're seeing if you're watching the video, and it's yes. it's a pretty extensive uh, route he's taken. <laughs> yes, yeah. so uh, the uh, comprehensive the points marker. are each each uh, of uh, the position of these uh, emergency trackers that you have, and ah, he had okay. a, an emergency tracker on board, and he was not alone, but he's the one person that has done on board that has done all of the all of the uh, uh, legs in in this uh, passage here. And uh, this uh, started in uh, 2012 in Tromsø in northern Norway and um, went first through the Northwest Passage, then down the uh, west coast of the North America and then across the Pacific and then up uh, in Indonesia to Japan. And then uh, two years ago, just before COVID uh, struck us, uh, he arrived back in Tromsø taking the Northeast Passage again. And... uh, (laughs) That as, is as uh, that do, is quite right. impressive for a small <laughs> sailboat because Best Explorer is a small sailboat. It's how, only how big is fifty-one it? feet, yeah, about okay. fifteen and something meters. So it's not a, it's not a big vessel, and uh, it's a steel-built vessel built in Italy and designed in Italy. And uh, and that's actually the vessel I started working on in '92 when I started with my research on marine mammals. And that's uh, awesome. And after. Uh, and in 2006, he be- went for sale. And uh, yeah, that's where it became, when he started a new life, a new lease of life. And uh, is now here in Tromso. There's also <laughs> a blog in Italian. So you'd yes. have to run it through Google Translate or something, um, which tells a bit more about the boat and its adventures. Here's another um Route. Yeah, that was the last leg. Yes, that's the uh, northeast passage from Japan over to Tromso. Oh, here's a here's in, a photo of the, yeah. of the ship. Yeah, wow. and you can go in and uh, and, uh, and get a little more details of this. But uh, oh, yeah, there we go. So, so it's slightly larger than a standard con- uh, shipping container. Yes, slightly <laughs> larger. Yes, yeah. slightly larger, but not, uh, <laughs> not, no, not at least longer. At least longer. Yeah, <laughs> yes, not so sure exactly. about the volume though. <laughs> Oh, with <laughs> no, the and everything. Not. So one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we're talking about the, uh, yeah, your, your dad and his uh, ship is that um, he's almost ready to go on a next quest, and we might be able to get some more uh, in-depth information about that. What's that about? Yeah, the. Um the next expedition, which is uh, starting in a, in a few weeks, is uh, it's an expedition to Svalbard, 
and uh, it's uh, in a system of expedition, a series of expeditions uh, called the Polar Quest. And uh, these are organized uh, to group uh, several European researchers and uh, they are uh, taking advantage of uh, Best Explorer as a smaller vessel and flexible and uh, with the flexibility of moving up to uh, to, uh, to very close to the shore, for example, and um, not having too many projects running at the same time. And uh, the, here you see the uh, the different members of the expedition this summer. Uh, mainly the main organizer is Paola Catapano here, who works at uh, CERN in uh, Geneva. And, uh, and on the top right you see my father. And, uh, and they are going to uh, sail from Tromsø over to Svalbard and then take several stops in Svalbard for mainly four uh, projects that you can see uh, a little further down. So they are going to be uh, looking uh, for non-invasive and uh, practical uh, solutions for small vessels to investigate the environment. One thing is they're going to be looking, they're taking samples from the fjord and taking eDNA samples. So samples for looking for eDNA. What is eDNA? And, uh, yeah, environmental DNA oh. stands for, and uh, it means that... Uh, if you consider that any organism leaves some DNA behind when they are moving through their environment, and this DNA has some sort of permanence, like we were saying before, well, if you take a sample, for example, on of the water, you will be able to check which organisms, which species have been in the environment that you sampled from. So you take a sample of the water in a fjord where there are blue whales and you should find DNA from blue whales. So by taking a sample, analyzing it for DNA and checking which animal this DNA is coming from, then you can have either a category of animals like vertebrates or fish or, or whales and, and then come down in many cases to the species level. So this is not just an explorer, an explorative um, mission. That's also a very scientific mission. I like this. It's very scientific, and this is just one of the projects. They are then investigating using drones the uh, uh, location and the the, the dynamics and the uh, and the shape of the several glaciers. So they are mapping uh, mm -hmm. some glaciers with uh, with the um, with the drones and they're going to be taking samples of the water as close as possible as pro as close as uh, defendable <laughs> for safety to the front of the glacier for microplastics and this is uh, also a uh, a very uh, a very actual well, how do you call it it's also very much in the news of uh, this with microplastics it's not just uh, the uh, bigger piece of plastic that we see on the beaches that are a problem but the small fragments that are left behind when these bigger large large bodies of plastic they uh, they decompose or they disintegrate do we speak about uavs or submersible drones they are talking about uh, both uh, uh, both kinds. I mean, for the mapping of the size of glaciers, Fly, yes, flying and diving fly, drones, flying drones, yes. but also yeah, <laughs> also underwater drones. <laughs> Just if keeping they the all, language straight. If they all work, of course, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, because I was yeah. I was I was uh, wondering about the microplastic or microplastic um, pollution. How you want to um, map that? Well, microplastic, yes, microplastic is going to be more difficult to to map from from air. In, but with um, no, with the, with the sampling of the water, this yeah. is what they want to get to, and and also checking how close to the glacier. I mean, ideally, we'd get the water, the melt water from the glaciers, and see if there is anything that they can get from there. But uh, I think that that is. Uh, I mean, I'm not into the actual details of the different projects here, but uh, this is uh, quite an interesting, quite an interesting uh, and very very actual thing to look at but just thinking yeah. that ahead if they find microplastic in the melt water of a glacier in, in Svalbard what would the implications be from that well there are there are two things because the the one way the microplastics can originate from one place the microplastic can originate from is the melt water from the surface of the glacier so the snow accumulating on the top of the glacier and melting seasonally can transport some microplastics. And, and this is trying to figure out if there is some air transport of microplastics. I mean, there are small particles and where are they coming from and how do they get there? Like we were talking about pollution, like molecules are of course transported by the air and then can precipitate on the top of the glacier. But can microplastic also have this global spreading and, and not uh, just by and the question aircraft, is also of the, the transport in the glacier i mean can can some of that stuff yes. melt on the top and come out at the bottom i guess that's probably yes. probably the case that's probably the case and uh, there are like it's a totally new uh, place to look for microplastics and and then of course there is also like how far back did the glacier contain microplastics? Mm -hmm. So if the microplastics has come into the glacier and possibly by air transport, like how far back do we see the microplastics plastic, problem? Plastic dating is probably quite difficult unless you have certain plastics that are only that have only been used in the I don't know, nineteen fifties or something that um that are yeah, no exactly. longer used. Anyway. Or additives to the plastic. So you can, yeah. by analyzing what kind of plastic, what kind of chemicals you have in them, you can see what is the, at least a, what age they should be have at the most. <laughs> like how old can they can they get? Interesting. So yeah, but that's then the 2021 expedition, if I understood that correctly, has yeah. also another goal, doesn't it? Yeah, well, they uh, they were looking, and actually, are two more goals. So before we go to the one that you're probably hinting at, uh, we uh, they are also looking at uh, driftwood. Now, yeah. Svalbard. I mean, you both have been to Svalbard and uh, traveled extensively. And one of the characteristics of Svalbard is you find a lot of wreckage on the beaches, and you find a lot of wood. And uh, one interesting thing to look at when you look at driftwood is where where does it come from and uh, and then the other is why are there some beaches like for example in woodfjord strangely named but uh, actually because there are no trees but <laughs> but it's full of wood why do they end up in woodfjord rather than another fjord and uh, and uh, where do they come from a little Pro bit probably like, going uh, to discover something like wood magnetism how about that <laughs> uh, they could be but uh, but the important part and and we have had a, a very excellent example of uh, 
like inspiration coming from driftwood is from nansen that yes got the inspiration of his polar drift with the fram by uh, finding driftwood of a wreck from northeast siberia that came all the way down to greenland so Which we had an episode about actually exactly i uh, do you remember the number of the episode <laughs> Um, not out of my pocket. It must we'll, be 20, 127 or something like that. Yeah, we'll yeah. figure it so, out and put it in the show notes. Exactly. And, uh, and that's, that's very important. I mean, knowing where is driftwood coming because also with global change, we have changes in uh, uh, ice cover, but also in ocean circulation. Is there something that we can get Episode from 129. This? 129 ah. for the Nansen. <laughs> And uh, like if we if we can uh, uh, time and observe what are the patterns of driftwood that we find now, and uh, maybe relate to patterns of driftwood uh, circulation and deposition previously, then we can maybe also predict where the um, where the future pollution is drifting to. Yeah, and that will help a lot to answer the question why an archipelago up in the north, in, in the Arctic Ocean, which has only two and a half thousand inhabitants, is so much affected by uh, plastic pollution. Like when you go to the beach, I mean, the the beach cleanup uh, in Svalbard has become a thing on pretty much every expedition cruise. And um, the kind of disappointing effect is you clean up one day you come back the next day and it looks pretty much the same when you start from scratch and exactly. answering that question um helps a lot to figure out where does it come from um which is now kind of analyzed by checking the um the remnants of their of, of what's found on the beaches and trying to um, identify where it comes from but um, yeah, getting a better picture of the ocean currents here and um, the entire very complex system on, on, on the currents. That's going to be very interesting. Yes, precisely. And then the last but not least uh, goal of the expedition is uh, that you were hinting at, probably, I yes. read your mind, <laughs> there is that they are going to be uh, doing uh, some mapping of the seafloor north of uh, Norauslandet. Uh, using a side scan sonar and uh, yes so the sonar project is an addition and uh, is uh, doing a cartographic uh, survey and it's an approved cartographic survey so it's uh, using a sonar it just doesn't only uh, give you the uh, depth of the bottom uh, like how long uh, what's the distance between the keel or the sensor and the bottom of the ocean but also by giving a picture like almost a three-dimensional picture of the bottom of the ocean and uh, and this is interesting not only for navigation for or geography for knowing how the bottom of the ocean looks like but also for finding things that are in the bottom of the ocean like in this case uh, an airplane be there yeah, they are going in this area because uh, it is an important uh, puzzle piece of the puzzle that they are looking for in the uh, polar exploration, and uh, that they are looking for the wreckage of the skeleton of the Italia airship. Ah, I remember we oh, talked about this. That rings rings a bell. Yeah, it rings a bell. It definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> 
So when uh, when Nobile uh, organized the uh, this uh, second expedition up to the to the Arctic region with the airships, I mean you remember that uh, the first expedition was with the airship called Norge and uh, went over the North Pole and ended up in Tellerin or close to Tellerin, Alaska. Well, a few years later, he uh, organized an expedition with a similar airship that uh, was called the Italia. And uh, it was also it had the same uh, base of uh, origin in New Olesund and uh, flew several missions over several days over the uh, polar ice and uh, had as a last day mission, the last planned expedition was up to the North Pole with the intention of uh, going uh, to land in, on the North Pole because the first expedition with Norge had just uh, flown over the North Pole and thrown down a couple of messages and uh, and uh, mementos, a uh, message from the Pope or something. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, coming back from this expedition, the Italia experienced uh, technical problems and it crashed and it was on the ice and it uh, it has been uh, a, the occasion of a, an enormous effort in search and rescue, probably the first multinational uh multi multi ship multi airplane uh effort made for a search and rescue in the arctic and, and it involved uh, one of the main characters of the heroic age of uh, exploration who disappeared while searching for nobile yes and you are hinting at amundsen yes. and amundsen left well called uh, like uh, an expedition as well in going searching for Nobile. He left uh, from mainland Norway, uh, from Tromsø, and uh, it disappeared while flying over the Barents Sea, so on its way up to the search area. Because uh, the uh, uh, position of the, uh, the exact position of the, uh, of the wreckage on the, uh, or the uh, ice uh, uh, position where the, uh, where the people or the crew of the Italia was uh, was that was more or less known, but with a with a huge area of, of search because they didn't have GPS coordinates and they had uh, just a small wireless uh, set that was sending they were sending a message out uh, that they needed help and um, and uh, so there was a need for airplanes and it was actually an airplane that found the uh, the party stranded on the ice. And uh, a Swedish airplane. Yeah. There's an, a nice um, movie from the 60s uh, about the entire incident, uh, the Red Tent, um, named after the uh, tent. It was I'm, I'm not sure if it was painted red or if, if the canvas was already red, but um, a very nice... I, th I think it was a, a Soviet co-production because obviously they got then rescued by a Soviet icebreaker. Um, so they had... The Krasinik. Exactly, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, an, an interest of uh, showcasing and highlighting that. But it's actually uh, a, a very nice um, movie in the first place, and it gives um, a good background story around that. And what's really interesting on that um, oh, note is Sean that Connery. Sorry. Okay. Yes, <laughs> Sean Connery plays Amundsen, if I uh, remember correctly. All right. And 
if um, if I also remember correctly, and that's the important note, is that even though the airship crashed, um, almost all except for one could um, could be rescued. There was just one fatality, if I remember correctly. Yeah, there are the the um, the airship. Uh broke on the ice i mean it hit the ice because of uh losing um losing uh, altitude. height altitude and uh, it crushed the ice the part of the gondola that was uh, the main part of the of the airship where the people were broke off and the rest of the wreckage tumbled away and uh, and it was visible from the red tent there where the gondola was it was visible and they saw more or less where he was. So there is an indication of where the wreckage could have been. But uh, then, you know, like uh, there was ice and uh, the people there, they perished. Of course, they were never found again. And, uh, the, uh, and then the ice drifts away. And uh, who knows where the ice melted and released the wreckage. It was a... A, a structure, a metal structure that is probably down somewhere in the bottom of the so, ocean. So how <laughs> high are the chances of finding something there? Well, it's uh, the the chances are are quite low, but it's still possible. Oh, it would be uh, sensational is, if they would find something. Yes, sure. it would be. It would be quite sensational. Now, if we think, if we make a comparison, the uh, LATAM where uh, Amundsen uh, was flying when he disappeared is in the in an area that has been searched extensively and is trawled by fishing boats and uh, it's been searched for with also with side scan sonar for oil and for explore mineral exploration in the Barents Sea and they haven't found the wreckage of this plane now it's a much smaller structure of course because the uh, Italia was about what is it 200 meter long or well, 100 meter long the good, the good thing long. is uh, Mara your father is involved in that whole thing because it's his <laughs> ship so um, what we're trying right now is to set something up where we might actually get him on the show as well so he can tell us mm. a bit more about this um, and I guess that kind of gets us to the end of the episode um, thanks everyone for watching one last little bit that I found uh, funny uh, you both have lived in Iceland so um, someone, some, an image went through uh, Twitter uh, over the last couple of days of a hotel phone that has a button that says Northern Lights Wake Up so the tourists who come to Iceland I just found this a nice little Arctic almost Arctic um, thing uh, so it's a very common service when you do a winter trip in Iceland. Isn't it? Yeah, I remember this yes. from, from various ships and so on. So, um, yeah. Oh, the show's over. <laughs> All right, everyone. Take care and bye-bye.